I get a little nervous when a pastor introduces a book about how to listen to bad sermons <laughs> before I get to preach. Ross, that's a dirty trick, buddy. <laughs> maybe fair, but uh, maybe fair. Well, tonight we're going to do a little bit different. Uh, really, it's not a sermon, more of like a teaching opportunity. And uh, opportunities, if you have a question or a comment, you know, feel free to... Uh, Raise your hand and help me out in this poor sermon that I'm going to be offering you tonight. <clears throat> we noted this morning that a number of churches are closing the doors in the United States of America. We noted this morning that uh, in our own fellowship, many of our churches, the majority are in decline or dying. I have to ask a question, why? And I think a major reason for churches in decline and or dying is that they are not reproducing. We've lost a sense, I believe, of the urgency of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. I'm meeting with a leadership team from a church not far from here. Their question is, should we merge or call a new pastor? The comment was, is there a third option? Could it be that if you as a body of believers begin to reach your neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then brought a pastor in, would that be an option? And followed up with the question of how long has it been since you as a leadership team have even brought somebody to church or shared the gospel or had an unbelieving neighbor in your house with an intention of loving them and sharing the gospel with them. I think oftentimes we are waiting for people to come to church to hear the gospel instead of going out into the world to bring the gospel to those who are around us. So as you get older, you begin to contemplate, so what is behind Doug not being so active in reproducing or seeking to share the seed of the word of God, knowing that God is the one who gives the increase? I just wrote down a few ideas of maybe what's behind our apathy towards seeing people come to know Christ as Savior. Maybe one is a disconnect that happens often in our lives between knowing God's word and doing God's word. When we know God's word, we sometimes get comfortable with saying, well, that's a good idea, and I believe that, but then we don't put it into practice. And as James would say in chapter 1, verse 22 or so, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. You remember the next phrase? Deceiving ourselves, that we have come into the point now where we know what we're supposed to do, but we haven't done it, but we're deceived because we accept the fact that we know that we should do that. Oftentimes, it is not a problem that we would say we disagree with the Great Commission. We agree that it's true, but in reality, we find that we don't do it. I won't ask you tonight, but how many of you in this room, how would you answer? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody who is not a family member? What redemptive relationships are you engaged in at this point in your life? doesn't matter if you're young or old. We have been put here by God with an opportunity to represent him and to glorify his name in our culture, in our communities. Maybe another uh, reason behind the church not reproducing is a skewed view of evangelism. I kind of grew up with the idea that uh, sharing the gospel is something you do with people you don't know. Go out on the street uh, and share the gospel with people you don't know. Go on a missions trip and share the gospel with people you don't know. Uh, I would have to say that I'm in that category of people that I'm not that bold to just go and do that. 
Um, there are some people who probably don't care if anybody likes them, and they're just comfortable being a little bit bold, maybe, almost rude sometimes. It's hard for us to do that. Many of us are not, we, we wouldn't do that about hardly anything in life. So it's hard for us, and when we think that that's the way you do evangelism, then uh, we're reticent to do that. Uh, I really believe, by the way, it's much more appealing to share the gospel with people that we love. I don't know of any parents who love their children, who have children, who aren't concerned about their eternal destiny and share the gospel with them because they love them and they want them to be with the Lord. I wonder, do we really love our neighbor and are we loving people when we share the gospel with people we don't even know, we don't even care about them? Maybe a third reason or cause behind the church not reproducing is we uh, embrace vicarious evangelism. We hire missionaries. We give them work, uh, money to go and to spread the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. And uh, because we're a good missionary-giving church and we support a number of missionaries, it feels like then we are being evangelistic by giving money to others to share the gospel. Uh, Sometimes I've been told that uh, as the pastor, it's my responsibility to share the gospel. And early on uh, in ministry, there were people who said that I, I should have an invitation at the end of every service and every sermon should be the gospel. Is that really the pastor's responsibility? I remember one guy saying, but what if somebody attends church for the first time and the only time they're ever going to hear the gospel is when you're up front preaching? Do you want that on your head, Pastor Doug? I said, get a book from Ross, and then you'll know how to listen to a bad sermon. And, uh, and you can address and deal with that. And it, somehow you have to deal with the providence of God, right? But uh, understand that that's some people's attitude, and his, this man's attitude was, it's the pastor's job to lead people to Christ in the morning worship service or the evening worship service. Maybe the last one, this is what I want to focus on tonight, and it kind of entails the others, and that is we've lost an understanding of our place as the people of God in the world. We're not sure how we fit in this world. This earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, O oh Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't be alone in this world anymore. Is that how it goes? I didn't write that down. I'm pretty impressed that I remember that. Uh, I don't know all my kids' names, but I remember that old song. Do we really understand that this world at this point really is, at some point, our home for now? That there is a new heaven and a new earth? I get that, and I look forward to that with, with great um, anticipation. But in our understanding of our place in the world, I think many believers have come to the point where our focus of attention is on the church gathered. It's when we gather together, that's our, that's our purpose in the world, to, to gather as the body of Christ to worship God acceptably. And, and I agree with that, and I've devoted my life to that, so I don't want to minimize that. But have we lessened the responsibility of the church scattered? That as we gather, we are edified, we built up, and then we go out into the world, and now we each represent Jesus Christ in the place where he has put us. Do you see, do I see my neighborhood, my workplace, uh, as a mission field that God has placed me in. He hasn't called me to go uh, to uh, Afghanistan. Um, he has called me to pastor or to reach the community in which he has placed me. 
So if we've lost our place, our understanding of our place in the world, then sometimes we don't see the opportunities all around us. I remember a time, and I tell a couple of stories tonight, and they, they're not intended to draw attention to me at all. They just, I hope, will reflect how I've had to work through this in my life and, uh, and, and how I've tried to handle this. Uh, being a pastor, I typically am involved with church people. That just seems to be a, a natural part of my life. And I remember preaching a sermon one time on a series on the gospel and evangelism and our responsibility to reach our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that series, and I don't remember how long it was, I don't remember um, where I was in the series, but I remember it was in Awana, Bring a Friend Night. And my kids uh, wanted to pass that section, and they needed to pass the section, so it was like, Dad, we need to bring somebody. And I was like, yes, you need to bring somebody. And they said, well, who are we going to invite? And I said, well, who are you going to invite? Well, they were in a Christian school, and uh, all their kids who were friends had their own church. So I said, no, you can't bring those guys from school or those girls. And then they said, well, how about so-and-so? We have, I have seven in my family that I grew up with, and they all lived within about ten minutes of my mom and dad's house. And we all had the uh, gift of having more children, so they had a lot of cousins. And they said, well, how about bringing cousin so-and-so or cousin so-and-so? And I said, no, we need to bring unsaved people. The purpose is to bring people to Christ. They said, we don't know anybody that's an unbeliever. Well, that didn't make me happy as a dad. It's like, go out there and reach the unsaved, kids. I didn't do that. I thought, you know what? I don't really know any unsaved people either. Oh, I run into them, but we lived on three acres at that time, and my one neighbor was a deacon in the church. The neighbor on this side said, I moved out here to get away from neighbors. If you need help, ask for help, and I'll help you, but I really don't want to talk to you other than that. Across the street was a 40-acre parcel, and the house was on the other end of the 40, and behind me was a 60-acre parcel that went this way, and the house was that way. There was no neighbor around. I was only with church people and in the Christian school. And we had six kids, and our lives were busy. So I talked with my wife, and I said, uh, I call her babe, is that all right? I don't know, as a pastor it was all right. I don't know if the executive directors can do that. Let's say it's all right for now. I said, babe, we need to do something. And, and she said, well, like what? And I said, oh, we need to sell our house, and we need to move into a neighborhood where we have neighbors and kids that we can get to know and then I gulped, and I said, and I think we need to pull our kids out of the Christian school and put them in the public school. Now, Kathy grew up in a Christian school environment. I grew up in a public school environment. And in her mind, um, if you wanted your kids to worship Satan and take drugs, you sent them to the public school. So my offer did not seem wise to her. Not just theoretically, viscerally. Selling her house was also difficult. We had just moved into the home, kind of made it ours. So we began to talk about it and pray about it. It's one of the few times in our, in our life, we've been married uh, coming up in 45 years, that we could not come to agreement. And I finally had to say to my wife, before God, as the head of our home, I really believe we need to sell our home and put our kids in a public school. 
And that's going to mean that we're going to have to be very involved in our kid life, kids' life even more than now and in their school and in our community. But it's going to put us around unbelievers. I don't know if she ever agreed, but she at least gave in because it was that hard for her. We put our house up for sale. We moved it. We moved into a neighborhood. So the house needed a lot of work. The lady before us had cats and uh, dogs, uh, maybe a kennel. I have no idea. It was bad. And so we had to tear all the flooring out. We had to seal all the floors. We had to seal all the carpet. She smoked for a while. We had to paint all the ceilings. So we had a lot of work to do. And it was about the second or third night we were in the house working and uh, late in the evening. And a neighbor came over and knocked on the door. And I'm like, oh, this is so fun. We have neighbors. And they came in, and they just said, hey, we're going out to eat, and we just want you to know, we left our garage, the back door open, if you need any tools or anything like that. The guy was really proud of his tools. You go back, you can go in there and use any, any of our tools anytime, we'd be happy. I said, well, that's great. My, my name, by the way, is Doug. This is my wife, Kathy. What's your name? He said, my name's Scott, and this is my wife, Tammy, Scott and Tammy Loman. I thought, well, okay, now I'm trying to get to know these people. Um, I said to him, you know, that's interesting. I, I know a Loman. And in West Michigan, you always know somebody who's related. Um, no one has a van in front of their name, but uh, Dutch community is pretty strong over there. So I know a Loman. He goes, oh, yeah, what's his name? I said, well, his name is, uh, you probably wouldn't know, he's up, from up north by uh, Hesperia. He goes, oh, that's interesting. I have a brother who lives up in Hesperia. Ah. I said, the guy I know up there, his name is, well, he's a pastor up there. And I thought, here's the, I'm going to share the gospel. Pastor, gospel, right? And said, he's a pastor up there. He goes, well, that's interesting. My brother is a pastor up in Hesperia. Now, you need to know something. At this point, I knew who I was talking to, and he knew who he was talking to. I said, well, this pastor's name, you probably wouldn't know him. He's a Baptist pastor. He goes, my brother's a Baptist pastor. His name is Mark. He goes, my brother's name is Mark. Now, in high school, my friend rented a cottage in Fremont on a lake there next to the house of Mark and Scott Loman. And I would go up there, and we would ski behind the Loman's boat. And I hadn't seen Scott Loman in probably 15 years. And we began to laugh, because I said the final one was this brother's name. Uh, this Mark had a brother, his name was Bush, because he had an afro when he was in high school. And he goes, Doug, can you believe it? I go, no, I can't believe it. We're moving. We move right in next door to each other. It's going to be a blast. The next week. In the office, my secretary said, Doug, you got a phone call. Uh, it's from a pastor up north named Mark Loman. Do you want to talk to him? Yeah. Mark says, hey, Doug, how you doing? Yada, yada. We got through the conversation. Then he goes, Doug, I want you to know something. I, I heard that my brother, you moved in next to my brother. I said, we did. And he said, Doug, do you know that we've been praying that God would bring somebody into Scott and Tammy's life? Scott has professed faith, but he's away from the Lord. And Tammy is an unbeliever. And we want you to know we believe you're an answer to prayer. So we'll keep praying, because we moved here to share the gospel with our neighbors. Delightfully, by God's grace, um, about a year and four months later, uh, I believe my wife was the one that did it, led Tammy to the Lord. Scott rededicated his life to the Lord. I was able to baptize Tammy. We watched their kids grow up with our kids, and their kids came to know Christ as Savior. In that community, a lot of kids began to come into our house. We never had problems getting kids to come to Friend Night anymore. 
who were unchurched and unsaved. One of them was a young lady named Kelsey that was about two years old when we first uh, moved in there. And uh, about, well, it was about the week after Easter 2022, a year, just over a year ago, uh, Kelsey and her husband, Joe, now move, uh, live in Florida. And uh, Kelsey let us know that that Easter, watching the live stream at West Cannon, uh, that both Kelsey and Joe put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a long time. That's like 20 years, 25, uh, 20 years yeah, since we had been living in that neighborhood with them, that she had grown up now and had put her faith in Christ. A little girl who was in our house all the time. They came up to visit us. Um, they're still friends. And she said, I always wanted to be a part of the Crawford family because you guys seem to really love each other. Raised in a broken home. I only tell you that story for this. Um, and, and I could tell you of, of kids who came to Awana and we, they came to know Christ and their parents. We got to lead them to Christ. And they began to come to our church and now are a part of our family. All because we just said we need to move out of our comfort zone and put ourselves in touch with unbelievers and just be the gospel in their world. I didn't have to go to people that I didn't know. I began to talk with people who I cared about and loved them. And I wonder if our attitude toward evangelism and our success is not a very good word. I don't like that. But the the, the fruit that comes from sharing the gospel is gone because we have forgot our place in the world, and that is we're not here just to make it through and protect ourselves. We are here on a mission to glorify God and to bring the gospel to the world, to those around us. By the way, that's your mission statement. It's a part of who you are, a First Baptist of Lapeer. It's on your website. It's a commitment that you have. The question is, are we doing it? Am I doing it? I think that's really a helpful thing for us to remember. Tonight I want to just look at that for a little bit. And I hope to encourage you. And it's not that put your kids in public school. Schools are way different now. I, I understand that. It's not that you need to sell your house and move into a neighborhood. That's none of my business. But somehow you need to address, I hope by the end of the night, and ask the question, who are you sharing the gospel with? What evangelistic relationship are you in, redemptive relationship, where you are getting to know unbelievers and you learn to love them and care for them and minister to them with a hope and prayer that you will see them come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you will see them grow in their faith and you will be ready to disciple them and they will be baptized and hopefully a part of this church family for the glory of God as part of something that we do. Okay? Ready to listen to this? Let's do a little bit of Old Testament search, just for a moment. We don't have a lot of time to do this, but um, there's a people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And if we look at Israel, we learn a couple things about them. And that is, number one, uh, they, they were not worthy of God calling them. They were, they were not a great nation or worthy of him calling them. But instead, he called the people for his own name and entered into covenant with them. And he entered into a relationship with the people that they would worship him acceptably, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that they would live according to the covenant and God would bless them and they would be a nation that would knew peace, they would be a nation that knew blessing, they would be a nation that just had great favor and the other nations around would see that this people whose God lived with them and dwelt with them blessed his people and the name of God would be glorified. 
And the psalmist writes this, and it's connected to David's psalm. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and worthy to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the nations are idols. He goes on, but the Lord made the heavens. And then he begins to go on and further express that worship the Lord in the beauty of, of holiness. Uh, this is a, a great movement that God had was these people were to glorify God in the world. It wasn't that God just cared about Jewish people. It was the world continued to go crazy up through the time of the flood. And so now it was in this world where there were these people. Now, let's focus the attention, God says, on, on this people Israel. And from this people will come a redeemer from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel failed miserably. They failed miserably. Over and over they went to idolatry. Over and over they broke the covenant. And God, according to his covenant promises, Leviticus 26, would bring hardship. They'd bring drought, bring famine. I just read about Ahab this morning and, and the famine there and his anger toward Elijah and all that went on there. That was, that was not that God was not capable of, of blessing his people, but his people were sinning against him, and the judgment was to turn them from their hard life and their sin so they would come back so God could bless them and reveal his glory to the nations by being a great God. And the ultimate punishment from God was, and if you don't listen to me for all of that, I'm going to take you out of the land, and I'm going to put you into a foreign nation. You might learn to fear me. <laughs> and he did. It's a fascinating concept to think of that, in that context, to think that Israel would not glorify God to the nations, so God says, I'll glorify my name to the nations through you in exile. Through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Go back and read the book of Daniel and read how God will begin to say, I'm going to glorify my name through these young men. You think especially of, of the bowing down and worshiping the idol or being burned in a fiery furnace. And they won't do that. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world who believes he's a god, is so angry. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And then he sees four in there. One of them looks like an angel or a god. And he doesn't know what to do with that. He says, guys, come out. And they go, hey, we're doing pretty good in here, you know. No smell of smoke. No burnt. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? He issued a decree that nobody would speak anything evil against the God of these Hebrew young men. Daniel, under the Medo-Persian Empire, under Darius, you can't pray to anybody but the king. Daniel says, I'm going to pray to my God three times a day in fulfillment of the promise that God made to Solomon when he built the, uh, the uh, temple for God. God, when people, even if they're in a faraway land, Pray toward this house, toward this place where you are going to place your name and your presence. God, if they pray toward this place, hear their prayers and deliver them. Daniel prays three times a day, facing toward the uh, temple of God. And there, as he prays, the, now the, the word is put out, you cannot pray to your God anymore. And Daniel says, I will pray. Remember, they throw him in the lion's den when they come and bring him out alive. And then they throw in the other people, and the lions eat them up immediately. Darius makes a decree about the glory of the God of these Hebrew young men, of Daniel at this point. 
You see, God wants to be glorified through his people. He doesn't just call out a people so that we can know his favor, and, and he only cares about us now. His mission is the glory of God through all of creation to all human beings of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. That is the goal and the purpose and the passion of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Israel lost sight of their purpose and their place in the world, and it led them to a really bad direction. So maybe the church has lost its sense of its purpose in the world. That we're not just here because we're somebody special and, and that God has redeemed us. And so now it's our purpose to grow and become spiritually mature so we can just be happy in this world. Although those things are really valuable and needed, we're to go into the world, all the world, preach the gospel to every person to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's who we are. Now, let's go to Second Peter for just a moment. What time am I supposed to be done, Pastor? Oh, good. I just saw the clock, and I was trying to make it look like not 7 o'clock, but it's definitely 7. I thought it would be done now. <laughs> Fifteen minutes, we can make it work. Second, or First Peter chapter 2. And I want you to know that we didn't have time to really develop it fully, but the, the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament is not dissimilar to the purpose of the church in the New Testament. Go to Exodus 19 and 20 when God calls out his people at Mount Sinai and enters into covenant with them. You're going to find some similarities to our text here. Let's just read it. I'll read if you can follow along. We'll pick it up in verse. Well, we'll pick it up in verse one. First Peter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have been you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now notice as you come to Him, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, those who are being brought up into salvation, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a a holy priesthood. This sounds very much like uh, Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be formed in this spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now follow this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, amongst those who are unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we have this spiritual household that's being built up by spiritual living stones, believers, and we are going to offer worship to God. We believe in the priesthood of the believer, and so we offer sacrifices that are acceptable to him because we are coming in Jesus' name, our great high priest, the chief cornerstone. And now as the people of God, we have a responsibility as those the people of God to fulfill a mission and a purpose in the world. To live lives among the unbelievers that they might see how we live our good works that they might glorify God in the day that he visits. Like they saw Daniel, like they saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They saw something and it changed their perception about the God of these Hebrew young men. What is it about our lives that is going to reflect to the world that we are something unique and our God is great, and he is worthy to be praised. That's how we're to live our lives. Again, I don't want to dismiss the importance of the people gathered to be edified as the body of Christ. And then we go out with a mission wherever God has placed you. I believe it's interesting now to note, and we'll do this quickly, but how Paul begins to fle- or Peter begins to flesh out now what does it mean to live a good life Amongst the Gentiles, or as Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. That we are not to put a bushel over the light. Do we need to sing the song? Maybe not tonight. But hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine because we are the light of the world now, representing Christ here. How do we let our light so shine before men that they might see the glory of our God in our life? How do we live good lives among the unbelievers? Are unbelievers going to see the glory of our God because we go to church? Probably not. They're not going to watch what's going on in in this place here. Coming to church is important. Not saying that. Is is our being patriotic going to lead people to Christ? Being pro-America? Is condemning sinful behavior and sinners going to reveal the glory of God? Sometimes we're, we're marked by these characteristics and we think that we're somehow fulfilling our purpose in these very things peter goes a different direction verse 13 where we left off be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of god That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter is writing to people who are being persecuted by the government for their identity in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, curse the darkness. Get a Republican in office. Doesn't do that. 
submit to them because they are there by the appointment and authority of God. How we live amongst Gentiles is fleshing out the glory of God by our submission to those who are in authority. He goes on. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. In our context, we want to make that employees be subject to your employers. With all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this is what you've been called to, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. How we live in the workplace. Live our lives amongst the Gentiles and the unbelievers in relationship to government, in relationship to our employment. But somehow at the workplace, you ought to be evidencing the grace of God and the glory of your God for people to see. He doesn't stop there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, connecting us to his argument, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. How do we display the glory of our God? In our home, in our marriage with wives who are submitting to their own husbands, even when they're not being very wise. For even Sarah, who called her husband Abraham Lord, was willing to submit to her own husband. Old Testament context. Now in our world, wives who submit to their own husbands. That's contrary to the culture. And find joy in that. And then in verse what is it, 7, husbands likewise, going down there, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. Our neighbors ought to be able to look at our marriages and see what a difference the gospel makes. So that somehow they see a wife that is submitting to her husband, and a husband who honors his wife, and they're raising children, by the way, if we go to the Ephesians 6 context, who honor their mother and father, and they say, what is going on with your home? You are like happy family by the grace of God. And God is glorified in our home. The gospel has transformed our lives. My wife cleans houses as a part of the way she is taking care of uh, helping our kids get to college and, and with weddings. And then she developed relationships. She'd been doing it for oh, a long time, 15 years with some of her clients. And one of them is a family that uh, is Indian, two doctors, uh, very successful, uh, but very unhappy. And Kathy was just involved in a, an experience in their life. Uh, a birthday party was invited to come. And uh, she went to the party and just said, it is so hard to see how unhappy they are. I want to help them with the gospel. When she first started meeting with them, they asked Kathy, will you teach our children what Christmas is all about? They don't know. Will you teach our children about Easter? They don't know. The husband has said to Kathy, you're one of the most difficult things, reasons for me to give up um, or, or not to condemn Christianity. 
because I see that you really love my family and you take care of us. All she's doing is being a child of God and being kind to these people. Are we seeing our lives as opportunities to reflect the gospel and to love our neighbor, not just condemn them, not isolate, so that now when they see our home, they go, there is something unique about your family, and you go, it's the grace of God. Not that you're perfect, you're just different. I delighted having lunch today with your pastors and their kids. They're legit. They're good people. Great kids. That should be true. And if an unbeliever was around me, go, what a great family you have. Yeah. By the grace of God and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are being controlled by the Spirit of God, and it's transformed our lives. Would you like me to tell you about it? He goes on, verse 8. Finally, it's completing an argument here, and the language is pretty clear. All of you, he's writing to believers, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever loves, uh, desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let Keep his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I believe, especially this first part, finally, for all of you, the church of Jesus Christ ought to reveal the glory of God as we gather. As an unbeliever walks in, they ought to say, there is something unique about this place. Look at all these different people, different ages, generations. I think they really love each other. And they get along so well, and they're doing something. How does that work? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is transforming us, and we really do love one another in the body of Christ. And so when we bring an unbeliever in or an unbeliever walks into our, our gathering, they ought to see something unique about us that marks out that we are disciples, and that is that we have love one for another. This is one of the tragedies I'm seeing in the context of this new ministry is when a church is known in its community as being unhappy, divisive, uh, fighting one another with members in the, within members of the community, that is not how you glorify God. Somehow we glorify God even in the context of how we get along with each other. Now for time's sake, we'll just run down to verse that we're familiar with, but I don't know if we have always put it in this context. We'll pick up in verse well, 13 where we left out. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy always being prepared to make a defense, a logical defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's an amazing turnaround. Instead of going to people that we don't know, stirring up our boldness and saying, do you know there's a way that's called the Romans Road for you to go to heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know where you go? They go, do I even know you? What if we lived such a life in front of unbelievers? They say, I don't understand how you live. Can you tell me about it? And you go, yes. 
I am ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. You who have asked me, because you've seen the glory of God somehow evidenced in me because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I think we have sheltered ourselves from the world too much. And the world needs to see the transformation of the gospel in the lives of God's people. To see how good he is and how walking in favor with God is not just a good life, it's the abundant life. And the things that they're looking for and the the paths they're pursuing are only going to lead, that folly always leads to division and strife and condemnation and death. But this path of, of wisdom leads to blessing and favor and unity and peace and love and joy. Those are such good things, aren't they? Quickly. We moved into another neighborhood, and it was different because we have a little more room between each other now that our kids are gone. And there's a neighbor. It's a, it's a dirt road. There's 12 houses on it. And when I moved in, one of the neighbors said, watch out for Tom. Tom is nasty. The road's not very wide. He'll run you off the road. Okay, well, look out for Tom. Tom did that. Tom was an ordinary, cranky old man. So I would always just move over for Tom and wave. And one day I came home at lunch. It's a pretty steep hill and a, a curve down and up. And I come around the corner and it was snowing like mad. And I got to the top and there was a minivan in the bank of the snow. And there was Tom's wife, Nancy, standing next to the minivan. And here was Tom. His head was the only thing showing. The rest of his body was underneath the van. He was going to try to push it out and his feet slipped and he went right underneath it. And there he was. And I was like, it's exactly what you deserve. <laughs> now I've got a pickup truck. And I was like, yes, I get to use my toe strap. I said, I'll help you. Let me run home and get my toe strap. And uh, I got Tom out of there first. And, and Nancy was close. I took her home. And, and then I came back. And we pulled the car out. And Tom told me how to do it. And really bossy. And I'm like, just stop it, Tom. Got him out, pulled him up the hill, got him to the top. Tom got out. I'm like, keep going, dude. He stopped and he got out. The snow was over his knees. He walked back to my car, to my truck. I opened the window and he said, why in the world would you help me? I said, well, you're my neighbor. He goes, so what? I said, do you know that God says I'm supposed to love my neighbor? Tom, you needed help today. Nobody's ever treated me like that before walked away they moved a couple weeks later we were able to share the gospel his wife found out she was actually a believer I don't know if Tom was if he was he was a work but he died about six months later I don't know where Tom is but I know this one little act that we would all do help somebody open the door for Tom to say I don't get it if we would have had more time I'd have been delighted to share the gospel with him so my encouragement to you tonight Part of our fellowship is we don't just need to get more people from other churches to come into our buildings. We need to go out to the highways and byways sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know your life situation. I don't know where you are, but you need to do it, and you're responsible to do it for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. So, Lord, um, you know me, and you know I have so far to go, and I would want to confess that in front of these people. Increase my burden for the lost. Give me more opportunities, Lord, just to love people and to share my life with them and the gospel of Jesus Christ with them.
move us off our, our comfort zone of knowing what we ought to do, but not doing it. May the Holy Spirit again begin to convict us, and may we feel that prompting so that we would be more faithful in representing you well as the Church of Jesus Christ in the world today. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.